Well, good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. We've come to Exodus 12, so get your Bibles open there. And in Exodus 12, we have one of the great events in the entire storyline of the Bible. Um, Obviously, when we talk about the Bible, every verse is inspired by God. Uh, Every jot and tittle is inspired by God. So we want to be careful of uh, saying one thing's more important than another. Obviously, God is at work at all times, working through all circumstances to advance His plan for His glory and our good. And yet, were we to create, say, a timeline of Scripture uh, and put on it maybe the top ten most important events? Obviously, you might have creation on there. You're going to have maybe Noah's flood on there, Jesus' death, resurrection on there, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but also the Passover. This is a really, really big deal. And if you're looking at your Bibles there, an awful lot of material is devoted to the Passover. Uh, all of uh, you know, half of chapter twelve is just about the Passover itself. Then you've got the plague, the death of the firstborn. Then you've got more on the Passover, and then more on the firstborn. I mean, then the fe- festival of unleavened bread, which is tied into the Passover. So as you can tell, this is a really big deal, and the entire book of Exodus is basically saying, "Pay attention to this." Um, I- I'm trying to show you something very significant here. It actually reminds me of how in the Gospels, so much time is devoted to. Jesus last week on the planet. If you've ever read the Gospels, I think it's the Gospel of Mark, uh, like 40% of Mark is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, uh, which again, it's a, it's a lot of material when so much other thi- so many other things could have been talked about. I mean, we don't know anything about Jesus, you know, uh, when, he, when he was like 10 years old, when he was a teenager, when he was, you know, we, we have very little information on big portions of Jesus' life, and yet so much devoted to the last week of his life, highlighting how significant it is. In a similar manner, we've got so much here about the last plague and about the Passover, which accompanies the last plague, uh, showing us the significance of it. Now, just to quickly, quickly put this passage in context, like we've said many, many times, uh, we're in the study of God redeeming his people out. Egypt. They were slaves to a very cruel taskmaster, Pharaoh. Uh, for 400 and some years they were slaves, but then God in his mercy raised up Moses. Moses is progressively humbling and crushing Pharaoh through these various plagues that we've looked at, plagues of flies and gnats and frogs and darkness and all sorts of horrible plagues. Like I've said before, they're the reversal of creation. They're, they're kind of showing what creation can turn into, the, the kind of the chaos and the, the craziness that can happen when God's good order is not instituted. But more than that, they're designed to humble Pharaoh and to show that his gods are no gods. His gods are dead idols, uh, but Jehovah, he is the true and living God. And sort of bit by bit, um, Herod Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Uh, There'll be a plague, and you might even think that Pharaoh's starting to see the light, but he'll harden his heart and say, no, you you guys can't go. Come on back here. You're not going anywhere. Uh, He's done that, but this final plague's going to change everything. Um, And something significant in the storyline of the Bible it's here that Israel transitions from being just sort of an ethnic group to a nation. Uh, we're going to especially talk about this with the Ten Commandments if we ever get there. Uh, but early on, when you're talking about just the descendants of Abraham, you know, the Hebrews, uh, they were more like an eth- ethnic group, just, you know, kind of people wandering around, you know, they, they didn't have any real organization, no no government, no king or anything like that. But here uh, in the book of Exodus is where they transition from being just sort of scattered Hebrews to all of a sudden the nation of Israel. And it sort of puts the pieces in place for then the king to arise. You know, first Saul, then David, and ultimately King Jesus. 
So maybe keep that in mind. This is, an, this is a huge transition, not only in the history of the people of Israel, but in the storyline of the entire Bible. Uh, now, I've, uh, you, you can probably tell I've got a lot that I'd like to say here on the Passover. So before we dive into it, let's pray for God's help. Uh, we'll see how far we can cover. Like, uh, like I said, the Passover covers most of chapter 12, which is a lot of material. So we'll just start reading through it, walking through it, and let God speak to us through it. Let's pray. God in heaven, please help us. We love your word, and we want to hear you speak to us through it. So please, open our hearts now, give us the gifts of conviction, mind renewal, repentance, transformation. Help us, Lord, to see the significance of the Passover and how it points us to an even greater Passover, Jesus, our Passover lamb. Please give me grace to make comments that accurately, helpfully bring out the meaning and the intent of this passage. And for all of us, give us uh, grace and faith to embrace your word and to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now I think what I'm going to do is read it paragraph by paragraph. Uh, you'll know if you listen to these Bible talks lately, I've kind of been going back and forth. Do I go like kind of verse by verse and make comments, or do I read the entire section uh, and make comments on the entire section? I think I'm going to go paragraph by paragraph this time, and we'll see how that goes. So let's start verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then the nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it from, pardon me, you shall keep it until the 14th day of, the, of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now pause there. Hopefully you can see as we read that the huge significance that this event will now play in the role of the people of Israel. Did you catch the way in which the entire calendar now is going to be defined by this event? Verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is kind of the uh, beginning of your nation. Uh, it reminds me of uh, July 4th. You know, we, we celebrate our uh, birthday as a nation every July 4th because that's the day they signed the Declaration of Independence. In a similar way, this event is huge. This is going to be the beginning of the calendar year for you. And what are they to do? On this particular day, they're to take a lamb. Now, there are many important things to notice about this lamb, and here's a couple of things I want you to keep in mind as we talk about the Passover. First, the entire Passover is a type of Jesus and his work. Um, we've talked about types before. They're divinely intended illustrations of the work of redemption. And that's what we have here, a perfect lamb, without blemish, spotless, killed at twilight. All of these are pictures of Jesus and his work. Always keep that in mind. And it's no coincidence that when we get to the New Testament, what does John the Baptist say when Jesus shows up on the scene? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, later on in first, I think it's 1 Corinthians, possibly 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. So again, here 1400, uh, not 14,000, 1400 BC, God is embedding all of these details into this event so that it's a divinely designed illustration of what Jesus Jesus would do. Uh, just one more testimony to the way in which the Bible is the Word of God. I already uh, alluded to it, but again, notice the allusions to Jesus in verse 4. Uh, you shall, uh, actually, verse 5 a lamb without blemish, 
Uh, we've talked before about the way in which Jesus with, was totally without sin. Uh, that's illustrated here by this lamb. Uh, he had to be perfect in every way. And Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He was uh, without original sin. That's one of the things the virgin birth protected him from. He was without actual sin. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He obeyed both positively and negatively. And that, by the way, is something maybe for the sake of time we won't explore too long. But realize that sin is not just not doing something horrible, you know, not murdering, not robbing a bank. Often people think that way, you know, you, when you're doing evangelism, people think like, uh, you know, how, how can I be a sinner? I've never robbed a bank, never murdered anybody, never committed adultery. Uh, well, that's good. I mean, I'm, obviously we're not commending sin, but realize obedience is also positive. There's a loving of the neighbor. There's a doing good. Jesus did all of that, and that's illustrated here by this spotless lamb. Um, and another thing you'll notice, that there's one lamb per household. Uh, we can talk more about this later, but the Old Testament did have this interesting thing where God looked at households as households. Uh, there's the father, and then the implications of what the father believed and did uh, affected his entire family. Now, there are many ways in which that's still true today. Uh, you know, what the father does does have implications on the entire family. You know, if I become a lousy, no good drunk, obviously my entire family is going to suffer. Uh, you know, if I go and take my life savings and gamble it away and I got nothing else, my entire family is going to suffer. So those principles are still true. Uh, one important thing, though, to emphasize don't think that just because, say, your father was a believer, that you're necessarily a believer or right with God yourself. You individually have to make a personal relationship with God, personally embrace Jesus for your own. Um, again, thinking about the New Testament, this is one of the common errors people fall into, thinking that just because my parents or grandparents uh, were right with God, I am somehow inherently right with God. Uh, don't take the way in which in the Old Testament God dealt with households that way, because when you get to the New Testament, it's clear uh, and, and Jesus makes this point several times, that sometimes it requires you to hate father and mother and to embrace me. Uh, moreover, what is, I think it's John the Baptist, don't think that because Abraham is your father that you're right with God. Uh, you individually have to repent and trust in Jesus. So as we talk about the household and the father's implications on the household, uh, don't mistake that for saying that just because I'm a Christian my kids are saved or something like that. Um, and as far as I know, um, virtually no Christians have believed that in the history of Christendom. Uh, pretty much everybody understands that you deal with God individually uh, on the basis of your faith and repentance, not necessarily on what your ancestors did. But anyway, let's pick up in verse 7. Let's read 7 through 13. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now quickly, a couple of more details to notice here. Uh, first, you'll notice the significance of the blood. That obviously came up many times. Uh, they were to kill this perfect Passover lamb, and then they were to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintel. Now, 
Interestingly, many people have actually seen sort of an illusion of the cross here. Uh, and I don't know personally if I buy this myself, but it does, it's worth considering. Uh, the doorposts are the sides of a door. You know, imagine a doorway right here. The doorposts are here, the lintel is up here. So I take some of the blood of this lamb, and I don't think it says in our passage here, but later on they're to use hyssop to dab it. Uh, hyssop is this kind of um, bush that you know had like tentacles that were almost like a paintbrush. So you're to get this bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood like a paintbrush, and then put some on doorpost one, doorpost two, and on the lintel. And many have sort of speculated that the blood from the lintel would drip down, gather on the floor, and what do you have? You've got a cross. And the entire idea is those who are protected by the blood of the cross will not be struck dead by the the angel of the Lord. Now, is that too much? Maybe, but at the same time, um, many have actually seen this alluding to the cross. And certainly when we look at the storyline of the Bible, the blood is a sign of the cross. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is emphatic that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's actually significant that Jesus died the way that he did. Uh, I used to attend ordination councils. I haven't been to one in a long, long time. Not because I uh, don't enjoy going to them, but actually because I haven't been invited to one in a long time. So if uh, you want to get ordained, maybe invite me and I'd be happy to be there. Uh, you know, unless you're a heretic or something like that. Well, actually, that, that actually might be more fun. But any, anyhow, coming back to our story, um, at ordination councils, they used to ask guys, uh, could Jesus have atoned for our sins if he had died by say, hanging, or by drowning, or something like that. Uh, The proper answer is actually no, because the Bible is emphatic that there's significance in the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It kind of ties into the whole theology of blood, believe it or not, in the Bible. There is significance, and this is why, for instance, the Jews, when they killed an animal, they were to pour out the blood on the ground. I mean, there's a whole sort of theology going on here. Um, And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not saying God's hands are bound, or God couldn't do whatever he wanted. But in God's plan, Jesus' blood had to be shed because it sort of ties into this entire theology. It, it reminds us of how bad our sins are. Uh, you know, how do you respond when you see blood? Uh, most of us are a little bit repulsed, you know, unless we've become kind of hardened to it because we're a butcher or something like that. And if you're a butcher, I'm not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, that can be a God glorifying calling and you can, you know, get used to blood and whatnot. But the, I think the natural human response to blood is a little bit of repulsion. Uh, I've heard of people that pass out when they see blood. Uh, you know, it is kind of, you know, we don't like to see, we don't like to look at it, smell it, touch it. You know, it's kind of repulsive. God has put it in our souls to show us the evil of our sins. Our sins are so evil that they require the shedding of blood. This disgusting thing that we don't like being around, that's how evil our sins are. Now, jump forward to the New Testament. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God incarnate. So his blood is the blood of God incarnate. It's a lot, you know, it's infinitely more precious than our blood. So, so this tells us, A, about how evil our sins are. They require the blood of God incarnate to wash them away. And yet it also tells us about the love of Jesus. He was glad to shed his blood to take our sins away. All of that is prefigured here in this Passover lamb. Another thing, I I tried to emphasize this while I was reading it, but in verse 12, on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. We've talked about this before, but again, the entire Exodus storyline is designed to show the deadness of the idols of Egypt, to show that they are worthless nothings, that at best they are demons. Um, And I, Jehovah, am the true God. For the sake of time, I won't say much more on that. I've talked a lot about idolatry and about the way in which the plagues are 
again, specifically against the idols of Egypt. But here you see that that's explicitly uh, in the book of Exodus. This is not something we've just invented and read into it. Now, something to notice, very importantly, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Later on, it talks about the angel of the Lord passing through, uh, actually the angel of death passing through the land of Egypt. So which is it? Is it the Lord? Is it the angel of death? Is it possible it's both? I think for the sake of time, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, And I'll show my hand right now. I actually think that there's a high likelihood that the angel of death is actually Jesus. Um, and again, for the sake of time, let me, let me delay explaining all of that until we get to it. Um, but maybe hold that thought in the back of your mind. Is it possible that the angel of death who slaughtered all of these firstborn is actually Jesus? If that is, that does sort of shape the way in which we look at Jesus. But let's wait till we get there and I can make my argument for that. You'll notice that they're to observe this Passover uh, ready to roll. They got their sandals on their feet, their belt in their hand, they're, they're holding on to their walking stick. Um, and interestingly, they are to re- reenact that uh, on into the future. The Passover, by the way, was designed to be repeated once a year. Um, th- this was not like you know just one Passover once and then they were to forget about it. This was actually to be repeated every single year, sort of a community uh, feast. Uh, even if you know Jews today who are you know semi-conservative, you know semi-serious, they still observe the Passover to this day. Uh, some what uh, six thousand four hundred years later, um, it, it is like the defining event of their nation. And even when they observe it today, they observe many of these elements. Uh, they, they've got the unleavened bread, they've got the wine. They're to do it in haste and so forth. All going back to this particular event. One other thing to sort of think about. Our observation of the Lord's Supper is the transformation of the Passover. Uh, if you read the Gospels, that's what Jesus does. On the, 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 night before he's betray, the night he's betrayed, they're observing the Passover. He transforms that into the Lord's Supper. Now, some of the elements are different. You know, we don't eat bitter herbs and we don't eat lamb when we eat the, when we eat the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and that's okay. We, we don't have to. But the entire uh, sort of event here of the Passover creates the foundation for the Lord's Supper. And by understanding the Passover better, we understand the Lord's Supper uh, better. Again, maybe for the sake of time, I'll delay talking about that until a little bit later. Uh, let's keep going. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but whatever one needs to eat, that alone you may that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread." A couple of quick things to notice here. Uh, first, this is clearly looking forward to after they leave Egypt. Uh, because here's something important to keep in mind. There's the Passover like feast itself, but then there's the seven-day festival of unleavened bread, and they're tied together. The first day of the Passover is the first, well, the, the Passover is the first day of the seven days of unleavened bread. Now, in Egypt, they weren't 
going to have the opportunity to celebrate the seven days of unleavened bread. Why? Because like this very night, Pharaoh says, get out of here. I don't want to see you again uh, after his you know, son is dead and whatnot. Uh, so this is clearly looking forward to future years, future generations, when the Passover is tied to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, thinking about leavened bread, what is leavened bread? Uh, leavened bread is bread without yeast. Uh, it's kind of like crackers or you know, matzah, if you know what, you, you can go to Walmart or Meyer and buy matzah bread. They're basically just great big saltine crackers without the salt on them. And it's something similar to that that they ate uh, accompanying the Passover. Now again, tying this in with typology, typically leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. Not always. We can go to some of the parables in the New Testament and it seems as if leaven there is picturing something else. Uh, But nine times out of ten, leaven is a picture of sin. And again, the unleavened bread, the, the bread without sin, is pointing us forward again to Jesus, the sinless uh, sacrifice for our sins. Um, and this is why when you go, go to, say, Galatians, Paul talks about a, leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, you don't let sin fester in your community. You've got to deal with it. You've got to root it out. It's not something to take lightly, not something to wink at or to tolerate. Uh, you've got to root it out. And again, that's all pictured here in the Festival of Unleavened Bread. I think for the sake of time, we'll conclude there for today. We'll pick up, Lord willing, next week at verse 21. How might we pray this back to God? A couple of things come to my mind. First, thank God for all of the types that are embedded in Scripture that are fulfilled in Jesus. To me, these are some of the most beautiful and powerful evidences that the Bible is from God. And these really are everywhere. Uh, you know, these lambs that, you know, that without the shedding of their blood, our sins can't be forgiven. Uh, you know, for hundreds of years, Jews probably didn't get it, but they were picturing Jesus every time they did that. Unleavened bread, again, another picture of Jesus. We're going to see more of these. Uh, again, all of these are, to me at least, reminders that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, let that sink in and, more, and strengthen your faith that the Bible is trustworthy. Additionally, let's praise God that He provided for us a sacrifice in the first place. Uh, you know, never forget that God was not obligated to provide a Savior. As soon as we rebelled and broke God's laws, God could have said, okay, you don't want me, you don't have to have me, be gone, uh, go to hell forever. Uh, and I'm not being harsh when I say that. God had every, that God would have been righteous had he done that. Uh, that's how, how great our sins are. And yet instead, God loved us and he provided a Passover lamb, a lamb whose blood washes our sins away. And that that. Uh, Passover lamb's name is Jesus. So let's thank God for that. But also, uh, think about has the blood been applied to the doorpost of your life? Uh, Has Jesus' blood been applied to you so that when the angel of death comes, you won't be slain in judgment? How does that happen? Think about John 1.14. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called sons of God. So have you personally, individually turned from your sins and embraced Jesus? Have you said in a figurative sense, Lord, apply Jesus' blood to the doorpost and the lintel of my life. I am a condemned sinner. I deserve to be cut down by the angel of death. Um, But I know that you're a gracious and merciful God and you've given us this Passover lamb. Please apply his blood to my life. Has that happened in your life? Uh, If not, today is the day to embrace Jesus as your own. Let's pray to these ends and we'll be done. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much for the beautiful types that are found in Scripture, these divinely designed illustrations of Jesus' person and work. Lord, help us to see them, to embrace them, and use them to strengthen our faith that the entire Bible is the living Word of God. How else could these things be there if not for you being the author of Scripture? Thank you, O God, for the way that you have provided us a Savior, a Savior who gladly saves uh, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation who come to him in faith. 
He is the Savior of the world, and we thank you for the way that his blood has been shed and for the way that you offer to apply his blood to all who call upon your name. So, Lord, we do pray for any within the hearing of my voice. Um, maybe people that are li- listening to this uh, months from now, years from now, uh, Lord, please work in their lives. Draw them to yourself, and we pray that they would beg for mercy and that you would apply the blood of Jesus to their lives, that they might be saved from the judgment which is to come. Thank you again for your word. Bless it, Lord, as we continue to study it in future studies. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.